Remember that video that took over social media where a prophetess in a white cape with a Gandalf staff declared that racism would end? Or maybe you've heard of a church where angel feathers supposedly filled the worship space? Or do you know anyone who believes that our spirits can travel or that Christians can use, quote, destiny cards to do cold readings at fairs? If all of this sounds strange and a little intriguing, then buckle up because we're going to be exploring all of the unorthodox practices of the NAR in today's episode of Theology on Air. Well, welcome back to Theology on Air. As you know, we are an offshoot of Theology on Tap, which is a ministry in Houston to young adults where we drink craft beer and talk about cool things and everything you need to know. You can find on our website, HoustonTOT.com. I'm rushing through this. I'm so excited for our guest today. But first, I'm Sarah Stone. I'm the executive director of Theology on Tap. I'm joined by Evan McClanahan, uh, pastor at, oh, I didn't say senior pastor. Okay, He's the okay. seniorest, seniory, most senior yeah. ever pastor at First Lutheran here in Midtown. Um, and we're joined by our two guests that if you listen to our last episode, you're acquainted with, but just in case, um, these are the authors of Counterfeit Kingdom, a wonderful book you should all read. Holly Pivik is a blogger, author, and speaker, as well as a pastor's wife and a homeschooling mom. She has a master's degree in apologetics from Biola University, where she also served as university editor for nearly a decade. And Doug Guyvet is a husband, father to two grown children, professor, author, speaker. He has a PhD in philosophy from USC and is a professor emeritus of philosophy at Biola University and Talbot School of Theology. And if you can tell I'm rushing, I am because there is so much to talk about in the second episode. If you joined us for our first episode, we tried to stick to where the beliefs go errant when it comes to NAR, which stands for the New Apostolic Reformation. If you don't know what that is, go listen to the first episode we did. But in this episode, I really want to look at some of the practices and some of the weird stuff that happens because of those fringe beliefs. So uh, what better way to start than to talk about waking up slumbering angels? I mean, let's just dive right in. There's a little, this is actually the one thing in the book that surprised me. Everything else I knew about and was like, oh, I'm glad they're saying this. I'm glad they're saying that this one, I was like, this is new. So what the heck is, uh, how, how are we waking up angels? Why are they sleeping? Where are they? Tell us all the things. Right. Well, waking angels is a practice that uh, was promoted by Benny Johnson, uh, the wife of Bill Johnson. Sadly, she passed away recently of cancer. But um, she described we talk about the story in our book where there was a student, a Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry student who uh, felt like she was supposed to go to a chapel, that God was leading her to go to a chapel in Wales, Mariah Chapel and um, wake up an angel that was supposedly uh, sleeping Sleeping on the job. And um, the I mean, they have been around since a long time and they're probably very tired. Well, the reason given for the the reason all these angels are sleeping uh, is because people haven't been crying out for revival. That's Mm. what they say. And so um, crying, crying out for revival, you know, revival is a really big focus in this movement, but it's a different paradigm for revival than, than the type of revival many other Christians seek. And we, we talk about that in our book, but so Benny Johnson was inspired by the story of the student of what happened when she woke the angel in Wales. And so she began her own practice of, of regularly trying to wake up sleeping angels and so she descri- she describes another story, a time that she and a group from the church went on a road trip and uh, to Hatchapi, California, 
and um and blow they blew shofars which are like ram's horn ram's horn instruments and to wake up an angel or angels did any walls come tumbling down i just want to and so um and and so that's that's kind of where that whole thing came from about waking angels when the girl woke up the first one in Wales, she like she saw something, right? Like in her yeah. in her testimony of this, what happened? The angel like swooped down and said, thank you. Or what happened? Yeah, yeah. The angel, I think the angel was, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, the exact details. Um, I guess we could just make people go buy your book and read it. Yeah. Well, it was like I, I sensed that the yeah, angel no, like swooped down. Is, and yeah, it's funny. She said if she turned around, she felt the ground begin to shake and heard this huge yawn. She looked back at the chapel and a huge angel stepped out. All she could see were his feet because he was that large. She asked him who he was and he turned to her and said, I'm the angel from the 1904 revival and you just woke me up. She asked him, why have you been asleep? The angel answered and said, because no one has been calling out for a revival anymore. Uh, well, praise to be that she declared that. That's amazing. Um, Doug, feel free to throw anything in here, but I'm going to well, move. I think the idea in part is that they believe that angels are all around us that we're we're surrounded by angels and uh we're not but we're not seeing much in in the way of their overt activity and so they are in effect slumbering and it's it's our fault uh we need to be more alert to their presence and to their um readiness to come to our aid and to foster revival but do other things for us um, if if we're willing and we do that, we demonstrate our willingness by attending to them and uh, and in effect, waking them up. So I think that's part of the idea behind this. Yeah, people yeah. should realize there are lots of courses that are sold by leaders in this movement that actually teach people how to have encounters with angels. Um, there's teachings about learning to see your angels and interact with angels. So so that's a really big emphasis in this movement. It seems I'm moving some things around and how I was going to ask you guys questions today, because if we're, if we're talking about the capacity to engage with and even taking courses on interacting with your angels, which I have not taken one of those courses. So I guess I'm, I'm not very good at it, but um, it, the corollary there is that, are we also supposed to be interacting with demons? Are we supposed to be putting them to sleep? I don't know. Um, but let's talk a little bit about um, the School of Supernatural Ministry at Bethel, um, and then maybe talk a little bit about some of their views on possession, exorcism, sozo. Maybe we can like unpack that whole thing a little bit. Well, school, the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry is um, it's in at Redding, California. Um, and it's a school where it's a three-year program where primarily young people, like college-aged people, will go and learn to become miracle workers. And so students at the school actually have fondly referred to their school as the Hogwarts, like Christian Hogwarts, like Hogwarts from the Harry Potter book series, mm -hmm. um, the School of Wizard Wizardry. Um, and so um, they've had about 13,000 graduates from the school and these graduates, people need to understand they're, that they're, they're engaging in new age type practices at the school. They're being activated in prophetic gifts, things like that. And the way people are activated in this movement, and for example, in a gift of prophecy, people need to realize like, like you may have two students stand back to back and they'll be blindfolded so they won't know who is behind them. And then they're supposed to just say whatever pops into their head is prophetic, a prophetic word for the person behind them. And they could even try to guess the person's birthday or what color their door is. 
of their of their childhood house or just uh, what their favorite movie is, things like that. This is how they're being activated in the prophetic. They're not supposed to filter their words. They're just supposed to say whatever pops into their head unfiltered as prophetic words. And um, and so you have people engage, learning these new age type activation practices and thing, exercises and things like that. And then they're being sent back to their churches throughout the world. Um, and they're becoming leaders of large organizations uh, in, in other countries. And, and so these Bethel teachings, these school of ministry teachings and our practices are being disseminated throughout the world through the school. And on top of the, the school you have in Reading, many other schools of supernatural ministry have been popping up at churches um, throughout the nation and around the world. Many of them use the curriculum from Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. And there's actually a school planning division at Bethel to help plant these schools. And so, so this is um, a really big thing, this Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. And, and another thing you mentioned they do at Bethel is SOZO, S-O-Z-O. And that's an inner healing and deliverance ministry that's been popularized by Bethel and is now spread to churches throughout the world. But, um, you know, we've talked in the last episode about how Bethel really emphasizes physical healing, that if people have sickness, it's always God's will to heal them. There are no exceptions. Well, they also emphasize inner healing from like if anybody has any psychological issues or emotional wounds, maybe they have broken relationships, uh, struggles with sin, besetting sin in their lives, whatever it is, they can be sozoed. So they set up, they sign up for a sozo session and it, it could be, you know, a couple hour long session. And, and there's these prophetically trained sozo ministers. There'll be one to three of them who will guide the participant through the session. And um, they try to uncover maybe if there's demons that are the root cause of the person's problems. Um, if there's any lies that people believe that need to be renounced. And uh, many people who've taken part in these sessions will actually say that, that, um, they were they recovered false memories here we go these yep. sessions and um and so but the the prophetic the people that lead the sessions claim to have a prophetic gift and so they can give prophetic insight god the holy spirit can reveal to them maybe the source of the person's struggles and this type of thing so these sozo has become a very popular inner healing and deliverance practice doug did you want to add anything to that or any thoughts no, I can't think of anything that I would add to that. Is it, am I conflating? I've listened to a lot of podcasts and read a lot of books. So uh, Holly, was it you that went to the school and like talked about the whole getting drunk thing and people laughing on the floor and that kind of thing? Was that you? Yes. Yeah, I actually visited, it wasn't the, the school, but I, I visited Bethel Church and I went to their adult Sunday school class. And they, they have, it's called, um, they, well, they have a 12 week session called fire starters. Fire starters is an R buzzword for revival as people starting revival. And it was kind of a condensed version of Bethel school, supernatural ministry, like a 12 week version for people who can't attend the full school. And so the, the class I attended that day, they were teaching people how to prophesy. They were active activating people in the prophetic. And yeah. So when I was there that day, um, the the teacher of this adult Sunday school class, he started off the class by telling everyone, okay, you know, we're going to get drunk today. And I, I tell the story, I'm paraphrasing, I tell the story in the book, but, you know, he tells everyone to imagine they're holding this big like jug of wine and to drink out of it. And he would tell them to do this throughout the class whenever he felt like they needed another drink and people would fall over and stagger like they were drunk. 
And so you had drunkenness in the spirit is a, is a practice. It's a lot cheaper though. I will say than real drunkenness. So that's something. Yeah. And then they were also people who never prophesied before they could come to the front of the room and learn to prophesy. So they would have someone come to the front of the room and pick someone in the audience. They didn't know and just say whatever popped into their head is a prophetic word for that person. And, And they were being activated in the prophetic that way. And they were, then the teach the teacher at my table, there was a, a teacher at each table who led us through discussion. He said, you know, don't worry if you make mistakes. It doesn't matter. Who cares? You know, just say whatever pops into your head. And uh, and of course, that sets off all kinds of yeah. alarms in your head when you know what the Bible warns about testing false prophets and the, the mm-hmm. dangers of, of false prophets. So so I'm just were- imagining like Elijah sitting at a table with some other guys and they're like, listen, don't worry if you don't get it right. You know, it's fine. Oh my gosh. That would have gone really poorly on Mount Carmel. I'm just saying like, good thing you got it right. Goodness. So, um, and then, uh, there's, I won't say her name because I know there's some controversy around this that I just learned about when we were chatting before we started recording, but there was someone who had come out of Bethel school of ministry and, um, school of supernatural, um, who was talking about her experience. And she talked about, there would be like mass exorcisms in classes, like the classes of students that are going there to become, I don't know, teachers of this purveyors, prophets, whatever. Um, do you know anything about that? Yeah. Well, she, this person did describe a mass exorcism that she said she saw happen at Bethel church in Reading, and and the way she described it um, was that, everybody in the room was like screaming as demons were allegedly coming out of them. So, so these are all Christians, presumably ostensibly that are coming to this. So does, does the NAR believe that Christians can be possessed? They, well, they might, so there might be differences on what leaders teach about whether someone could be possessed or oppressed. If you're aware of the, the distinctions in the terminology, but yeah, they definitely believe that um, believers can come under demonic influence, however they what however they want to call that. And so that's why like the so-so sessions are so popular. And and you know I've heard reports that um, that many of the people who minister at Bethel Church, uh, just as volunteers in different capacities, are required to go through so-so sessions mm-hmm. um, because the the belief is that demon yeah is is very common for demons to afflict even christians and and um and deliverance sessions like that are very common and it makes me when you start talking about repressed memories um i mean a lot of cults start this way right i mean there was just the the special ad on hulu about the cult at sarah lawrence university and it was small but the guy basically convinced them through you know missing sleep and taking drugs and just being really charismatic of all these terrible things, like their parents, you know, parents had raped them or parents had kept them, um, you know, in dangerous situations. And then got to the point where he convinced them all where they really believed it, that they had poisoned people or were poisoned by people. This is all through this kind of thing. Like this is a dangerous thing. These social sessions are messing with things we ought not mess with. Yeah. We talk about this in our book, but there are stories of, of, multiple stories of people whose children went off to Bethel and then suddenly started accusing the parents of um, abusing them when they were young. They didn't remember that, but this was maybe recovered during a Sozo session. And uh, so, you know, we talk about in our book how um, studies have shown that false memories can be produced during Mm -hmm. 
during um, practices associated with recovered memory therapy. And so we talked about how prominent professional organizations, including the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, and the Australian Psychological Society, and the British Royal College of Psychiatrists, they have all issued strong warnings against such practices of, mm -hmm. of trying to you know, recover memories like that because of the danger of false memories being recovered. Yeah. Man, it's so sad to think as a parent that your child could go off and come back and and be, and really believe it, not mm -hmm. just say it. Oh, okay, heartbreaking. Let's move on to something a little more fun and strange and less heart-wrenching. Um, it seems like as I read your book and as I've been studying this, there are a lot of things that the NAR movement is doing that are really appropriating new age practices. I want to talk a little bit about some of that. We've already kind of talked a little bit, but um, let's talk about things like the the spirit readings or the destiny card. Tell us about that. It's basically tarot cards for Jesus. Does one of you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So there, there is an organization, there is an organization named Christ Alignment. Mm -hmm. And um, it came to light that a number of, of students from Bethel were, take, were taking part in these destiny readings with this organization, Christ Alignment. Um, and um, and these destiny cards, they would have pictures of things like animals or nature scenes or things on them. And they were drawn by prophetic artists and they and they were being used to reveal information about people's future. Um, and and um, and it, on the website of Christ Alignment, they actually compared they liken these cards to tarot cards. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, for instance, on the website, it actually said psalm readings are similar to tarot and that cards are counted out according to your birth date, date and year. Only three cards are used and these will represent your past, present and future. This was on the Christ Alignment website in the description of the cards. Right. But when it came to light that Bethel students were or joining this organization, Christ Alignment, and going to like New Age fairs and things, and, and giving these Destiny cards readings, um, then you know it was very controversial. And Bethel Church released a, a press release, and they basically said uh, they defended the organization, Christ Alignment. They said we don't have any official connection with the organization. However, we do appreciate uh, their approach and trying to reach out to New Agers, and the and they're not using their cards like tarot cards. But the thing is. Uh, when it when the controversy erupted, the Christ Alignment quickly took the references to tarot cards off their website. And so you can actually go to our book and, and find the documentation for where you can go online and look at an internet archive and actually see the original website before the controversy came out, how they did compare their cards to tarot cards, and then and then how they removed that language uh, after the controversy broke out. So there really was a cover-up going on with this organization, Christ Alignment. Um, yeah. I went and to the, when I was reading that. this, I went to their website and there was a lot of stuff that had been removed, but just now I went and coming soon, Christ alignment, destiny readings, beautiful, deep 20 minute destiny readings using our own cards, which will help you with all relationship issues, life questions and problems. We also offer free physical healing with this service. This is amazing. Uh, come and get your life changed. Longer appointments can be booked with individual team members. W what were you going to say, Doug? Well, a couple things I was going to say, uh, you, you know, th these are like physical objects that are being used to intuit spiritual truths. Mm -hmm. And they're like amulets or tarot cards or what have you that are just being used in a spiritualistic way. And uh, the second point I was going to say is just related to that is that, you know, that their use of these cards 
is directly borrowed from the tarot practice. Mm-hmm. So their 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 whole methodology, you know, step one, step two, step three, and the goals that they're trying for perfectly parallel what uh, is supposed to be going on with tarot. It's the furthest thing from anything in scripture. And mm-hmm. they're obviously not getting their instructions and their guidance in how to how to use such cards uh, from the biblical tradition or from um, any kind of tradition in in the church, longstanding tradition in the church. It's borrowed directly from a pagan practice. Yeah. yeah, and we know from scripture, from Deuteronomy 18, we know that all forms of divination are expressly for forbidden by God in scripture. Um, and so this, the, they're a tool of divination to obtain secret or hidden information uh, outside of God's ordained means about the past or the present or the future. And this is forbidden in scripture. Um, but the, but Bethel and other leaders in NAR, they will actually they will acknowledge similarities to New Age practices or occult practices. But what they'll say is that the New Agers actually stole these practices from Christians. Oh, OK. And that Christians need to redeem and reclaim these practices for the church. So these are supposedly practices the first maybe the first century Christians had and then they lost through the centuries. And now they need to be redeemed and reclaimed back from the New Agers. This almost so, sounds like Enneagram. We're not going to get into the Enneagram. I'm just saying it sounds familiar. That's all. No, I, I think it's important to mention here. I said that there's no history in the church of acceptance of these things. But we do know from a study of the New Testament, I've just been researching again, uh, the uh, chapters two and three of the book of Revelation, which are addressed to seven churches in mm-hmm. Asia Minor. And Jesus Christ is addressing um, what the the works of each of the churches. And in there, he has commendations and concerns. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, the Church of Thyatira, for example, is commended for their works, their love, their patience, and so forth, and says that you've been growing in these things. It's even greater now than it was in the beginning for you. But then he warns them about this prophetess, Jezebel, mm-hmm. and uh, and the false teaching that she has brought into the church, and they've come under her sway, and they're influenced by her. So here is an example in the New Testament of a church, and it's not the only one, where there's a mixture of good and, and bad. Mm. And the bad is associated directly with the demonic here. And it's an amazing thing that we can see even in the history of the church, going back even to the time when John wrote this this book, probably around 90 to 95 AD, there were uh, efforts to adopt pagan practices and incorporate them uh, into the church. And 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 they the, these these people were supposed to know better. It even says in that passage about the church of Thyatira that uh, God had waited patiently for this Jezebel, this woman in this this prophetess, uh, to repent, and she had not repented. And so that's why it's 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 directly uh, uh, attacked in this little letter to that church. Yeah. And so uh, it's nothing new in that sense that what we're seeing today has been seen before, different versions of it, to be sure, but pagan practices that are entering in and being um, being welcomed and celebrated, and then by means of obfuscation and deception, passed off as Christian from the beginning. Yeah. No, I'm glad you said that because, uh, you know, I 
I could see people listening to this entire series that we're doing and think, well, why are you doing this? Are you just being sensational? Which, I mean, it is kind of a fun thing to talk about. I'll say that, but also because this stuff is creeping in and because just like those letters you talked about with some good and some bad, we want to be able to know where the bad stuff is so we can weed it out. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you said that. I'm going to skip ahead just because I want to get to music, but before we do a couple other new agey things, can you talk a little bit about spirit travel? I mean, we're, are we talking astral projection here and telepathy? You talked on page 45 about people communicating spiritually with their children, which would be amazing. I'd like to communicate spiritually with anyone, but um, can, can our spirits leave our bodies? Tell us about that. Yeah, so a practice promoted by some NAR leaders is spirit travel. And that's the idea that um, a person's body remains in one physical location, but their spirit can allegedly travel to other locations around the world um, or even to heaven or even to events in the past or the future. Um, And so um, interestingly, uh, Jen Johnson is the co-founder of Bethel Music with her husband, Brian And she actually just made a reference to spirit travel, it seemed, on Facebook recently. She was talking about how she wished she could be at the Asbury Revival. And um, she can. Yeah. And she wrote, she wrote, I had a dream last night that Brian and I flew to the Asbury Revival to be a part. I just got their worship team together and prayed over them and asked how we could help and what they needed. I bawled my eyes out as I prayed. I really hope that actually happened in the spirit because that's exactly what I want to do. So that's just a recent example of just from, you know, a couple of weeks ago uh, when she she actually referenced this. But um, and we talk in our book about other others who promote this practice. But that's what spirit travel is. Um, Just to play devil's advocate, not that we need to, because there's enough crazy here to really cover things. But I could see someone saying, well, what she means is that she wishes it's like when we say someone's there with you in spirit, we don't actually mean that they're there. We mean that you carry their memory in your heart kind of thing. Do you think maybe that's what they mean? Like we want to be there and we're there in spirit. You know, we agree with what's happening there. Right. Yeah. And and I could see how people would think that, but if they, if they know that this is a teaching that's promoted. So Bill Johnson endorsed a book, uh, that we cite in our book it's called i think like moving in the glory realms by joshua mills something like that is the title of the book but but he uh he endorsed a book where this spirit travel was explicitly as i described it as as staying in one your body's in one location but you can go to the past or the future or you know heaven or where like this is this is promoted explicitly by NAR leaders, including Bill Johnson. And okay. so, you know, that's his daughter, daughter-in-law, Jen Johnson. So in yeah, that context, that. when you see those statements, you know, you interpret it through that. Yeah. I noticed the way that she put it. She didn't say that I was there in, in spirit, you know, uh, I'm with you guys in spirit. She mm-hmm. didn't use the vernacular. She used an extraordinary language. I hope that that is what happened. Hmm. that I was there, that my spirit was there. I really hope that actually happened in the spirit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is a common art teaching in other churches too. This idea of prophets will claim that they've traveled to like the rooms of Kings or other locations and overheard these important conversations and things like that. It's just very common. Sorry, Doug, go ahead. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also the way she describes it rather incoherent because on the one hand, you know, she's saying that this is a possibility, but she has no recollection of it. So 
um, how could her spirit have uh, gone and been present and then operated in the way that she describes, and yet she wouldn't know for sure that it had. She can't be in two places at the same time spiritually, and uh, unless that's part of their teaching. So this is not unlike many other things that uh, they teach that simply on close inspection begin to kind of fall apart conceptually. Mm-hmm. And the coherence of the doctrines is weak, but that's not their strong suit. Their strong suit is to appeal, appeal to intuitions, feelings, um, subjective impressions of things and not logic or scriptural support or even, you know, just coherence. Uh, that's not a real requirement uh, to pass their theology off. In fact, um, Bill Johnson has said that when a, when God's anointing is on a song, that's an effective way to communicate uh, doctrine that people wouldn't accept if you just tried to teach it to them straight up. So that's a clear effort to appeal to people's emotions and manipulate and manage their emotions to get them to accept things in an uncritical fashion because they wouldn't believe it otherwise. Yeah. And, you know, there's also just, I mean, to speak as sort of an atheist to this, like there's just no result, right? I mean, if if really all these things were true, if the stuff about the angels and demons were true, if the stuff about making these declarations and the power to do that were true, and then if the spirit travel or spirit communication were true, I think a lot of things in this world would be different, right? Especially if you could, if your spirit could travel to the past, and I've seen Back to the Future, and I know that's not something we should mess with. But uh, think about all the things we could undo or learn from and do differently. It just you think that you would see a lot more results, especially just in media. But uh, let's let's move us on to one of the other kind of. By the way, a lot of these things that we're calling sort of crazy or problematic. Um, Bethel came out with a series. I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically Bill Johnson sitting down with some guy. And they're dispelling some of these myths or they're saying like, oh, I know you guys think that, but it's not exactly that. But then it is like you can find pictures of it or you can find evidence of these things. And the one I'm talking about right now is grave soaking or grave sucking. Tell us about that. And they'll say, no, 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 it wasn't that. But you can find a picture of Benny Johnson like lying on a grave. So so what's happening? Yeah, there? Yeah, that series you're talking about is called Rediscover Bethel. It's a six part series where they deal with a lot of the criticisms of the church. First of all, it's very notable that they had to produce this lengthy six-part series and deal with so many bizarre, I mean, things. I mean, it's just, and they're they're planning on making more videos, according, they're they're saying, to deal with even more. So what other church out there has had so many bizarre Mm. practices and things that they've actually had to produce this entire series just to respond to them? But um but that aside, grave soaking or sucking is a practice that came to light that that uh their students were taking part in and even some of their leaders, even though Bethel will deny that. And that was where, uh, where you would, someone would go to like the grave of a deceased miracle worker, like Catherine Kuhlman, for example, or Smith Wigglesworth. And they would think that they could like suck or out the anointing or the miraculous powers or, or soak the anointing up from the bones or from the, the, in the grave and um, that they would base this practice on 2 Kings 13, 21, uh, where it describes that as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So that's the, the where they would point to in scripture to support that. 
And um, when it came to light that the Bethel students were doing this, which you can go online, you can just Google grave soaking mm -hmm. or grape sucking um, in Bethel. You'll find all these pictures of, of Bethel students taking part in the practice. And um, but you also see Bill Johnson's wife, Benny, also taking part in the practice and and um, Ben Fitzgerald, who is a graduate of Bethel School Supernatural Ministry and, and was a, a pastor at Bethel, also promoting this practice. There's a video where you can see that and we cite it in our book. And so even though they tried to say that they're in, in former Bethel students will also say that they heard Bethel leaders promote this practice. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for example, uh, Jesse has a series called Breaking Bethel, Jesse Westwood, and he he talks about this. And so so even though they deny that they ever promoted it, the evidence uh, sure sure looks to the contrary of that. Yeah. You know, if if people are wondering why, why are you talking about all these weird things? Part of it is um you know, I made a post recently on Facebook about something with the music, which we're going to get to here in a minute. And various of my friends were like, why are you saying that? Like Bethel is awesome. I love Bethel. I listen to their sermons. I love their music. Um, I think. And then when I talked to them, I said, well, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? When you start listing all these things out, then you start to make a case for you probably ought not be listening to those sermons. You probably shouldn't really be singing those songs. We'll get to that um, because all of this other kind of stuff is all in this same bubble right of belief and practice and it sounds crazy but we're not just talking about it because it sounds crazy but because it points to really bad theology problematic theology um and also theology that will really leave you disappointed and disillusioned with god when it sort of doesn't work that's what yeah these teachings really harm people and i mentioned in the the last episode that we get letters regularly from people daily describing uh oh we lost holly I mean, the ways they've been harmed um the division uh, I can still see me, but you can't see me. You're good. You Hello. you dropped for a second, but keep going. Oh, okay. Sorry. I could, I can still see me. Um, yeah. So, um, that we, people are sending us letters all the time saying though that, uh, their church is split because of the teachings of this movement, uh, because apostles and prophets came in and, and started claiming this authority and it, it was very divisive, uh, families that are split because Grown children are going off to Bethel and then cutting off their family. Um, marriages that are really are really strained because you have one partner that's in NAR and the other one isn't, and they're concerned about the kids being raised in this. Um, you have disillusionment with the Christian faith, people deconstructing. Yep. Uh, and then ending up going into progressive Christianity or even becoming atheists. And so the reason we talk about Bethel is not in other in our churches like Bethel is not just to pick on Bethel. It's yeah. because teachings really, really hurt people. And we, we get testimonies of this all the time from people. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I know we'll get some pushback, but last weird thing before we get into talking about the reckless love sized elephant in the room, which is the worship music. But, um, Let's talk about glitter, glitter clouds, glitter hands, and the Holy Spirit hands, Holy Spirit glitter clouds. Tell us about those, either one of you. Well, the, the glory cloud was... was the glory uh, cloud, sorry. Yeah, the glory cloud, although people did describe it as looking like like glitter. Like yeah. there were different description of it, but like a cloud of glitter in the air. And so in 2011, this cloud started appearing during Bethel services, like worship services. They say it appeared over a period of 18 months, about 26 times. 
And um, it would, they saw that as a sign of God's presence in the church. And some people would say it descended from the ceiling. Other people would kind of say it rose from the ground, but they would say that people were healed, like physically healed when they were in the cloud and things like that. And, and people still talk about it today and they say, okay, what was that? You know, was, there's a debate. Was this really God's presence? Was it, um, was it that there were sweat droplets in the air and, you know, there's some scientific ex explanation for it? Was it, was somebody actually putting glitter in the air conditioning, you know, ducks or something? I don't know. Like there's there, you know, was it actually just a, a, a you know, a, a, hoax. A, scan, a hoax? Yeah. yeah. Um, there's all this debate about it, but but in not just at Bethel and other NAR churches as well, people will claim that glitter materializes on their hands. Sometimes mm -hmm. they'll just look at their hands or, or it's on their body, on their clothes, or, or maybe they have gold teeth fillings that just miraculously appear in their teeth. And, and these are all seen as like signs of God's supernatural presence. So manifestations in NAR are physical happenings that reflects something going on in the spiritual realm. So they would say these are like physical manifestations that uh, show some like God's presence. So now the hands thing I can dismiss because when I Googled it, it just looks like sweaty palms to me, but that are glistening in church light. Church light is the, you know, when I used to have a diamond back when I was married and I had my diamond ring, that's when it would look the prettiest is in church lights, you know? So hands aside, I've seen pictures of the glory cloud it does look like someone put glitter in the AC duct. What, what's your take? Do you think it's a phenomenon of like group think? Do you think it is a hoax or maybe you don't want to say what you think it is? I don't know. What do you think, Doug? <laughs> well, I, I don't, I, I think there are any number of things that could explain either the phenomenon, if it happened or the belief that it happened, whether it did or not. And so uh, which of these is the correct explanation? I don't know. But I think the weakest explanation is the one that the Bethel people believe themselves. <laughs> That's the least likely and uh, certainly not to be expected. Now, when things happen because they're predicted by a reliable source and they happen exactly as predicted, then that gives you some evidence. But, you know, there's nothing there's no reason to expect that God's presence would be manifest in these various ways. And in fact, I'm suspicious because of all the other things that do go on under the Bethel label uh, officially, you know, the teachings that we've been talking about and this whole litany of things, one bizarre teaching after another, so much of it borrowed from pagan practices mm -hmm. that when I hear reports of, you know, a glory cloud or something like that, that that provides me with my interpretive tool uh, to determine, you know, to to say, well, I, I don't I don't believe that that was a manifestation of the presence of God. And what difference would it make anyway? I mean, maybe for the people that were present, there was some special reason to think that what they were witnessing was was something unique and special spiritually. But what what is the what is gained by mm. advertising this to the world? And, and and trying to get other people to believe that it really happened as described. I mean, what is accomplished? It's not like we're seeing the resurrected Lord for the first time or something like that. But, you know, you have to you have to, I think, exaggerate the value of these things in order to draw attention to yourselves mm -hmm. and to get people to say, you know, I need to be there and I need to witness yeah, self-promotion. It's marketing. <laughs> It's a marketing tactic. Now, yeah. I wouldn't want to market my church that way. 
I don't want my church to be known for those kinds of things. But uh, they do. Now, why is that? What does that tell you about their self-perception, their sense of significance among churches in the world today? They think they're pretty special. And that God is, you know, regards Bethel Church to be something like a portal to special heavenly realities. And uh, I simply don't trust a a claim of that sort. And I don't think that this evidence really supports a claim like that. Yeah. To to throw a little shade on the current uh, revivals, I guess, taking off now. Sorry, Uh but there's a a Facebook picture uh, in this area where these revivals are going on. It was sort of like a cloudy is sort of like clouds or smoke or something in a sanctuary. And it was like, Oh, things are about to happen. You know, like the spirits are here kind of thing. Well, we, we have incense uh, for Lent, Lenten Vespers, our Wednesday night service during Lent. We always use incense for that. And um, if the, if the conditions are right, you can get it to where the smoke will sort of go up, but just stay there. You know, it won't Mm -hmm. go all the way to the ceiling it won't spread. If I'm not running the AC, it doesn't get spread around. It covers it, like over it, the water. Yeah, the it's actually yeah. quite cool. About, you know, 10, 15 feet off the air, there's like this layer of smoke and it just sits there. You know, I could mm-hmm. take a picture of that and be like, oh, the spirit's here. You you sh- know. That's how you should market your church. Yeah. Things are coming. Things are happening. Come get healed. I do want to say, though, that and, and this is the last thing I'll say for both of these episodes, I think. But, you know, this is a, I think this is a solo scriptura fight in my own view. You know, the Ref- Reformation was largely this defense of the scripture as the authoritative, you know, revelation from God over and against the Roman Catholic Church, which had capital T tradition. And I think this is a solo scriptura fight all over again, but it's not tradition, but this these experiences. So I think that's really what we're fighting about is the sufficiency um, not just the necessity, but the sufficiency of scripture all over again. Um, and then mm-hmm. I have a pithy saying about all this stuff, which is basically um, if if everything they're saying and doing, all these new revelations or whatever, if they're it, consonant with the Bible, then they're not needed. It's just, mm. you know, but if they're not consonant with the Bible, then we're putting the spirit at odds with himself. If mm-hmm. the Bible is spirit inspired, now there's this new revelation from the spirit. Mm-hmm. So I know they they would say, well, we're just adding to it. But if it's contrary to the scripture, as say the Book of Mormon is, or as mm-hmm. say other teachings are, well, it can't hold. So that's yeah. why that's my main argument against any new revelation, whether it's in the more mainstream charismatic movement or this. It's like, look, if it's different from the Bible, it's unspiritual in the capital S sense of that word. And if it says what the Bible says, then we really don't need it. We just need to hold fast to scripture all the more. So, Amen. Yeah. No, that's uh, absolutely right. I, I'm with you on that. And I... You know, I would say that there, uh, I often point out that there are three main sources of error here uh, within NAR. Uh, mm-hmm. One is uh, just the distortion of scripture. So mm-hmm. when they teach the scriptures, you can see plainly that that's not what it says. And uh, that's one way that error comes in. Another way is is a slight uh, shift from that, and that is that they purport to have special illumination, revealed illumination about truths that are there but only for those who have eyes to see. And and so uh, that's another area where they can't be tested because um, if you don't see it, then that's just your limitation spiritually. Yeah, it's the emperor's new clothes. <laughs> yeah, it's a fiction, right? And then uh, a third era, source of error is just the extra biblical revelation they, they purport to receive. It's revelation they receive quite apart from what the scriptures teach. And when I see them uh, distorting scripture and teaching things that are patently false, if you look at scripture, or they are saying that the Bible says this and it says nothing of the kind, 
then I can't trust their prophetic claims either because, you go. know, I don't trust a prophet who can't read the Bible and understand it correctly. So if they can't read the Bible and understand it correctly, you've already failed a fundamental test mm -hmm. uh, in your claim to be a prophet about anything else. You're untrustworthy yeah. in that regard. And, you know, I this is also why I think it's so good that we have people like you guys and Mike Winger and other people that are going to look at some of these scriptures where some of them you can tell they're being exaggerated or distorted, but some of them, like the Jesus saying, you'll do greater things. I mean, at, at first reading, it could seem like he's saying what the NAR people are saying. So you need good teachers that can say like, here's what this word means here. He's talking more about scope than he is about miracles. And anyway, so, so I'm thankful for the work that you guys are doing and you're right. And if you want to learn more about some of the like predictions they've made that didn't come true, some political, some uh, spiritual or whatever, you can you can look at the book. I want to leave some things for people to read in the book, but let's talk about worship music before we go. Um, because as we have a few minutes left, I just want to talk about our reaction and our response to this. You guys have a chapter about like how to talk to your kids about this, but even if people don't have kids, but they just want to know like, so what's my role here? Should I just stop singing when, you know, an elevation song comes on, which by the way, I've come to the point where I stopped singing it, but just a little insight. I, um, I've had, we've all had tragedy in our lives. My brother passed away in 2020 after a ton of prayer that the Lord would not, um, let him pass away. And then he did. And, um, and so when I came back to church after that, and we're singing songs about, I see a breakthrough is coming by faith. I see a miracle or God's going to give me a victory. It, it didn't just ring hollow. It rang hurtful. Like mm -hmm. This I understand that in the grand scheme of things, in the cosmic sense of things, God is going to make all things new. There will be victory. There'll be breakthrough, all these things. But that's not what the songs mean. They mean it's coming now. I can speak it. And it's really kind of cruel for someone that's gone through that kind of tragedy to come and sing these songs. It feels like it's just taunting me. So let's talk a little bit about what do you say to people that say, well, they're singing these songs in my church and they're catchy and I like them. And isn't that okay? Yeah, I think you make a good point that um, so a lot of people, when they sing songs coming out of NAR churches, they do because they're not NAR, they will interpret it like you said, like, well, yeah, I know in the future, one day God will make everything right. One day, one day we'll all be resurrected. Our bodies will be resurrected. But that and when in these NAR songs, they're talking about modern day resurrections, you know, when they talk mm -hmm. about resurrection often. And so um. So it's important for people to realize that NAR theology is laced through the lyrics of NAR music. And we give examples of that in our book, specific examples. For example, there's a Bethel music song called Champion. That There's a line, when I open up my mouth, miracles start breaking out. Well, that's a mm -hmm. reference to NAR teaching about making declarations that are with our spoken words, we can cause miracles to happen by speaking words. And, and there's a lot more examples we give in our book. Um, but um, you once you know our teachings and you know the buzzwords, you'll start. You won't be able to unknow them. Yep. You'll start hearing them all the time in music from Bethel Church, from Jesus Culture, from uh, Forerunner Music, which is at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, uh, Gateway Music. Um, and it, you asked about Elevation earlier. A lot of even though Elevation Church is not a NAR church. Uh, it's, it's the music has been heavily influenced by NAR and you can mm -hmm. see that in the lyrics. So people need to oh, realize yeah. that to just to, they need to know NAR teachings 
and not just know who the NAR churches are, but really be able to detect the teachings that can come up in a lot of music that even music that's not coming from overtly NAR churches. What about um, Hillsong real fast? What do you think yeah, about their so, music? Yeah, Hillsong is 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 essentially a NAR church. We we cite a book in our our book that documents uh, the history of, of NAR influence on Hillsong. And okay. so like like uh, Houston, Brian Houston is regarded as an apostle and Bobby by the other leaders of the church and by other leaders outside the church. Um, and so, yeah, it, Hillsong's essentially NAR, heavily NAR influenced. And, and you can see that we talk about specific Hillsong lyrics in our book too. Um, and so you start to recognize the buzzwords, things like open heaven is, is something you'll see or, or references to declarations or, um, um you know activate anointing mm -hmm. right and when they talk there's a really heavy emphasis on miracles in our songs like you were talking about um but but they'll talk as if miracles are happening all the time that they should be routine routine they should be happening all the time that they're signs of god's love for us um that if you don't have faith for miracles there it's like there's something wrong with you um, you know, if you don't have faith that God's always going to do a miracle in your circumstance. And so there's this really unhealthy and overemphasis on miracles and, and they're being set up as, as, um, signs of God's love for us and things like that, that are, that are really harmful. Um, this music is cultivating a view of God and of reality and of what relationship with God should look like. If you want to be, uh, have an intimate relationship with God, then this is what it looks like. And your music, mm. these, these worship songs are reflecting a perspective about that, how prayer works, um, the frequency of miracles, like Holly was saying. And then you have to compare your experience with what you're singing. And if it doesn't, <laughs> it, it's not like you said, it rings hollow when your experience is in contradiction to what reality is being portrayed in the in the music we say in in the book in the chapter on toxic worship music that uh, our songs have become a catechism for the church mm. it is the means by which people are hearing rep repeated uh doctrines and teachings and this is this is how people's views of God are being shaped and their views of relationship with God and expectations of God are being shaped and, and formed. And then you need to test that. I, I would recommend that people first ask themselves if they understand what the lyrics even mean. And then they need to ask themselves, now, are these things true? What this implies about God or says about miracles or, or prayer? Um, is this true? And how do I know it's true? Can I ground this in scripture? Or is it just based on experience? Am I believing this simply because um, we're, we're all singing this together in church? And the power of music to work on our souls and our emotions, mm -hmm. to shape our beliefs about things, uh, that's uh, um, a, a danger. Now, there's a power in it that's appropriate, because when we can get to worship God in spirit and in truth is to worship God not only in spirit but in truth, <laughs> and and to and and the the spirit must be tested by some standard of truth. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people think that their emotions are an indicator of what is true, mm -hmm. but in fact, truth is a gauge upon the adequacy of our emotions to reality. 
and we want to bring our uh, our emotional lives and our spiritual lives into alignment with with truth, and that requires knowledge, and that takes some effort. And just singing songs on a Sunday morning or at a worship service during revival uh, can implicate us in in saying things that we don't believe and probably aren't true anyway. Yeah, man, so well said. Okay, now you answer this question in the book, but what do you say to people that say um, a couple of things? One, uh, so they sing those songs in my church, but otherwise it's a healthy church. Can't we just sing those songs? Um, and and by the way, if you don't think it's a lot of songs, just Google the songs you like and you start to realize it's a mountain, a mountain of influence, one might say, of music that is has been commandeered by this theology. But so can we sing the songs? And what about, can we just sing the songs where the lyrics of that particular song are okay? You know, like there are some Bethel songs. If you read through all the lyrics are fine. Like, Mm -hmm. is there now I will say you guys changed my mind. Well, you guys, and the fact that I had those visceral responses to the songs changed my mind about this. I used to say, Oh, we can sing the, you know, billion galaxy song or whatever. Um, And it's Mm -hmm. okay because I'm not going to one of those churches. I've changed my mind. I I'm, I will not go to a church that sings those songs anymore. But tell us why you you say yeah, that. I'd like to speak to that. Uh, first of all, <laughs> you you have to be discerning to even know which lyrics are theologically sound and which ones are not. They have a track record of being unsound, so that's already a red flag. And so uh, uh, you know, and it's going to take a considerable amount of effort to <laughs> examine the lyrics check them against the theology of the movement and determine whether the the lyrics really are uh, truthful and reliable and and sound. Uh, and how who's going to make that effort? I mean, really? And are, is it going to be the youth pastor going to do it on behalf of the young people that are singing the songs? Or is each individual young person going to be doing that or the parents? Um, you know, that's very unlikely that that would happen, that that anybody would vet the music as carefully as all that. It does happen, and there is that. But then you have to be familiar with the movement and the framework, the whole paradigm, to even know how the words are being used. We believe that when you sing many of these songs, you are effectively participating in prayers of declaration. Whether you believe in prayers of declaration mm. or not is another matter. And some people might say, well, if I don't believe I'm doing that, then I'm I'm I I'm not doing that. But uh the gnarlies think you are, and they're composing the music to get the church universally to participate mm-hmm. in this kind of thing to bring revival and heaven to earth. Oh, man. So there is that. that. Now, another thing is that even if the lyrics are safe, that doesn't mean that the music is safe because the music is generally emotional and it's not very theologically rich. So even if there's no violation of anything that's taught in scripture by a particular lyric, that doesn't mean it's something that you should give your time to if you're giving up your credible, your critical faculties in the interest of feeling good. I mean, if it, worship music is not, it does not exist for the purposes of making us feel good. That's not the purpose of worship music. Uh, that's another thing to consider. Now, here is where I think the the real uh, the the final straw is. This music is being used to lure people into the movement. Here we go. Yeah, directly to Bethel Church, and we know this from testimony. I'm not speculating here. 
So many people tell us that the way that they became familiar with Bethel and were drawn to it was through the music that was being used in their own churches. Churches that uh, the Bethel leadership would say are dead and dry and you're wasting your time to even be going there. And people begin to realize, yeah, I guess if this is reality, there's something wrong with my church. And they do go looking elsewhere. And Mm -hmm. so I think it is self-destructive for the leadership of a church to be advertising a different way of doing church than the way they do it themselves by importing this kind of music and encouraging people to shape their spiritual lives accordingly. So I think that because the music is a conduit into the movement, it is, uh, it's probably best that we set it aside and not even worry about trying to sift through all the lyrics and figure out which ones we can include and which ones that we can't. Uh, they're counting on us doing that, and uh, they're going to hook our young people and others Mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't say just young people, but certainly. I was going to say, I know plenty of people much older than I am that have been hooked into Bethel because they there was a song that was catchy. They got home and they're like, I want to listen to that again. They Google the lyrics. They find Bethel. They download the album. Next thing you know, they're listening to sermons and thinking maybe they need to go to Reading. I mean, I, I know people that are that I just described my friends, some friends. Right. Yeah. And the music is training us to think that that's how you evaluate a song and a lyric is by how you feel when you're singing it. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing a lot of people will say, well, there was some hymn writer a long time ago that wrote a a hymn we all sing today and he had some sketchy theology or got into some sketchy theology. But the thing is, people are not in danger today of getting drawn into whatever sketchy theology that was back then. What they're in danger of today is getting drawn into NAR. That's the big movement. That's the present danger. And so just because we sing a hymn that someone had had some sketchy theology that doesn't pose the threat that singing NAR music does today. So that Our means we can sing Methodist. We can sing Charles Wesley and not become Methodist. It's okay. I'm just being Our musicians silly. musicians have become our theologians. Say that again. Our musicians have become our theologians. Yeah. That's scary. They are now operationally the theologians of the church for so many people today. That's what's shaping people's understandings of God and the spirit of prayer and various practices of the Christian faith. And most of these songs, they don't even have complete sentences. <laughs> they, I mean, they, they grammatically, they, they don't even make any sense. They're like phrases. They're these kind of ideas thrown out. If you actually parsed it grammatically, I mean, I do think that matters because, yeah. you know, yeah. you, look like old, down. you look at the old hymns, it's like great poetry, not just coherent sentences. It's like great poetry. And now it's just, they just throw out phrases and ideas that people can kind of fill in the blanks. So. Yeah, yeah, I'm, people I'm attach, certainly... yeah, people attach their own meaning and everybody has something different in mind because like you say, it's just a phrase and people are investing and bringing their own meaning to it. And so people could all be in the same room singing the same song and all not even be on the same page with what they're singing because everybody's bringing their own meaning to the lyrics. Yeah, that's good. Well, we're just about out of time and I had other questions ready that we won't be able to get to, but just about how to how to maybe deal with people that we know that are caught up in this kind of theology, but you talk about that in the book, but do you have any sort of last thoughts for just how do we respond to this, whether that's talking to people that are caught up in it or our own, you know, spiritual journeys in our own churches, any last thoughts on how we respond? Yeah. One quick thing I did want to say is, you know, for anything we've said today, 
we do really have a lot of documentation in our books. So for example, I mentioned NAR Influence on Hillsong. That's documented in our book. And I encourage people to go check that out. Um, but um, as far as, uh, you know, if people that might um, uh, be getting drawn into NAR, you know, one, one thing we can say to our friends is uh, ask them if they've ever heard of NAR. They probably haven't heard of the term necessarily New Apostolic Reformation, but if they've heard of the concerns about it, um and ask them questions like Greg Kokel tactic style yeah you know you can asking questions is a really good tool um for gently challenging our friends to support their NAR beliefs from scripture and be prepared for them to to give you some verses but be prepared to show them how those verses are are being used out of context to support NAR beliefs like Ephesians 4 11 with the doctrine of fivefold ministry that we talked about mm -hmm. uh and um, it's you could ask your friend if they will consider reading a book like Counterfeit Kingdom or listening to a podcast like your podcast. Um, sometimes uh, people will be open to, to that. Maybe a podcast is an easier entry for some people. Um, and um, just really pray that their eyes will be open too. I can't under I can't understate the value of prayer. Um, that was in my relationship with Adam when we were dating. Aww. I was praying so hard that his eyes would be open to the error and, and they were. Um, and mm. so many other people have shared that like their young, like their adult children won't even talk with them right now, or, or they can't, they won't talk about NAR, you know, because it always, there, it's a very sensitive topic. And so one thing people can do is they can pray for their friends or their adult children or whoever that God will, will open their eyes, even if those people are not open to discussing things right now. Yeah, that's good. Doug, any last thoughts before we go? Yeah, I would reiterate the need to ask questions of your own practices as well. You know, when I pray, do I believe what I'm praying? And should I? Uh, what What is my source of knowledge about how to pray, how to worship, and um, on what basis do I believe these things to be true? That is just so fundamental. I think our prayer lives would improve if we did that. They'd become more true, and uh, and so would our worship practices. Uh, so many people, too, this is another concern that I, I've kind of been growing with, is uh, people who have left NAR, and there are many who have, uh, they've recovered, and they're in, they're in recovery. They talk about how difficult it really is because life, the Christian life, is understood so differently mm. by by NAR teachers uh, than it is uh, in accordance with scriptural principles. Uh, people are, are are realizing that they've been relying on alleged prophets and apostles to live their lives, and they don't know how to read the Bible for themselves and discern good principles for decision making and uh, the accumulation and application of biblical wisdom to day to day decisions. Uh, that part is just completely glossed over and lost. Uh, people are are talking, giving testimonies, though, about how their relationship to Jesus is almost like it's a relationship with a completely different person wow. than they thought Jesus was before, uh, because now they're seeing Jesus through the lens of Scripture. That's a great way to see him. Of others, yeah. Yeah, people will say that they don't know how to pray. They have to relearn how to pray. 
Uh, someone just emailed me again yesterday saying saying that um, because they're so used to doing prayer declarations, they have to learn how to pray in a biblical way again. So um, there are spiritual, uh, there, there are um, Facebook groups, like where people who are recovering from NAR will actually go and try to find support. So we encourage people to, to look into that as well. So if people, if this is your experience, right. And for some people, it's been their experience their whole lives at home, at church with all their friends, maybe school even, and that's all they can associate with Christianity. And then their uh, eyes are opened and they discover these problems and now they're looking for tr- for authentic Christianity and the true gospel, and they're finding it in Scripture, and they're looking for churches that are faithful. And so churches have a special obligation when they, they have new members that are coming out of this movement to be sensitive to, to this, in, this whole enculturation that they've experienced. And now mm-hmm. they're in churches where, where life is so different. It's a huge acclimation process culture shock yeah yes it's a it's a shock to their systems but also we're hearing just testimonies about how revitalizing and refreshing it is so many of people who are absorbed with nar teaching and practice they feel they don't realize it uh, oftentimes at the time that it's a it's it's a kind of a trap it's a works kind of uh orientation to what's supposed to be grace and they mm. feel terrific pressure to perform mm-hmm. and to expect God to do things and to have enough faith to see them come about. And then when they don't happen, there's self-recriminations because they think that yeah. maybe it's their fault and all of that. And so it can be quite liberating to discover what the gospel really teaches about God's grace towards us. Yeah, man, that's really good. All right. Well, we have to go because time is up and you guys have things to do and so do we, but I'm so thankful that you took your time to come uh, talk with us today. And I know our listeners are going to be really, I think, refreshed by lis- by listening. Uh, if people want to learn more about all of this, obviously they can get the book, Counterfeit Kingdom, but where can listeners find you if they want to ask you some questions or write you one of these many letters you guys get? Well, I have a blog. It's hollypivik.com, H-O-L-L-Y-P-I-V-E-C. And um, I, there's a contact form on there. And um, I also frequently post uh, updates about this movement there as well. And also I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well. So she's everywhere. Okay, Doug, what about you? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I recommend Holly's website as a go He's like, don't write to me. I don't remember me. <laughs> everything through my my agent. <laughs> right. Well, actually, that is partly true, I guess. But the, the real truth is that she publishes uh, re- routinely. My website yeah. is is uh, about so many different things because of my teaching yeah. um, subjects, but uh, and occasionally on this. But and and also, Holly and I have written some things together that are published on her blog as well. Okay. So and and I expect there'll be more of that in the future. But but her site is so good because it's dedicated to the uh, the topic and uh, it's up to date. And as new things come along, uh, she will generally report on it and report on what others are saying about it as well. So that that is my first recommendation to people. That's great. Um, she's your Sarah. intercessor. 
I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> and I'll say this, if if you're in the Houston area, or even if you're not, and you want to talk about this with me or Evan, we're always available. Our contact information, or you can reach us through a form on HoustonTOT.com. We always answer those. Uh, we're not so big and important yet that we have to have someone else answer all our fan mail, you know, <laughs> so uh, HoustonTOT.com. And of course, you can also come to some of our events. Like we're going to be doing one on the Holy Spirit on June 13th. And what's the Holy Spirit up to? And we're going to have uh, multiple positions represented there that night. So you can come in and hear us spar a little bit, but in good charitable disagreement. But uh, until we see you next time, of course, thank you for joining us. But to our listeners, I'll uh, remind you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.